Right, these are all different instruments, right? Instruments of some kind. You can use an instrument's a tool. It can be used to measure things, um, but they're all used for specific purposes, right? And um, doesn't make sense uh, to use glue to clean your hands. Uh, they all have, um, they fit somewhere. They do a certain thing uh, for a certain purpose at a certain point in time. You don't want a pair of scissors if you need to cut down a tree, right? Um, no, that wouldn't help. And you don't want to go to the dentist and see a chainsaw sitting on his little stand, right? You're going to get a tooth out, and he has a chainsaw sitting there. That would be frightening. You're like, what is, what is this? Uh, so instruments and tools serve a specific purpose for a specific thing at a certain point in time, right? Uh, same is true for people. If If your house is on fire, you're not going to call the logistics warehouse manager at Amazon. Who are you going to call? The fire department. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, That's exactly what we're going to do. Now, Scripture is full of times when God uses people and circumstances differently than what we would use them for. We would say... uh, Of course I'm going to use this to clean my hands. That's what it's made for. But there's other times when we look through uh, the story of God, as we examine the story of God, which we've been doing for a year and a half, year and eight months, nine months almost now, uh, where we've come across different people at different points in time that God has used them, and it just didn't make sense. But when we looked at it, the end result was incredible. It was remarkable. It was a story that we couldn't write. It was a story that we couldn't bring to fruition. Abraham, uh, God is going to inhabit um, a land, he's going he's gonna to form a nation out of this man in a land that's already inhabited. He's going to take a foreigner and he's going to place him in a, a new country and he's going to give that country to them. Now, Abraham, did he have lots of children? Yes. Not when he first went there. Did he have any children? No. Not when he first went there. Was his wife able to have children? Yes. No. And so God took Abraham, who couldn't have any children, with no children, and said, hey, I'm going to put you in this place that you don't know, that where you're not from, and you're going to be an entire nation when this is all said and done. Now, we wouldn't have thought to do that. We would say, let's take this large group of people. They've already established themselves. They've already set things in order. They have a, a military, and they have defenses, and they have resources. Let's use this people. That's not what God did. The same with uh, as you follow Abraham's family, you look at Joseph. Joseph was almost kind of a silly dreamer. Uh, and he, he made his siblings so angry. They were all upset with him. They didn't like him. Because he was always telling them things that, well, they, they found it offensive. And so they said, you know what, we'll get rid of you. And they sold him into slavery. And so this kind of silly young child, this dreamer, gets sold into slavery and finds himself... Because of his dreams, the very dreams that upset his brothers, uh, it's through those dreams that God uses to basically redeem his entire family and this entire nation. Moses. Moses was fearful. He was angry. He was given up for adoption. He couldn't speak. But God uses Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. David, the runt of the family. Nobody wanted this guy to be the king to be the warrior. This was not who anybody would choose, but it's who God chose. 
Jesus. When you look at Jesus, the Bible uh, tells us some things about Jesus. It says that he wasn't much to look at. He wasn't even really a particularly handsome fellow. Uh, he was born in a manger. He was poor. He was very meek and mild, a, a carpenter from a town that nobody really liked. It's like from being on the other side of the tracks, a place that really nobody thinks anything good can come out of. All of these circumstances, as we've looked at the story of God, are instances where God has used people, he's chosen people to do certain things to accomplish his will, to accomplish his purpose. So kind of the main idea that we're going to look at is that God uses the most unlikely the most unlikely to accomplish his purpose. So that when his will is accomplished, no other explanation can be given. You can't say, well, I worked real hard for that. Or the reason, the reason that happened is because I'm just really good at it. Like, it seems practically everybody that God chooses, it would be the opposite of that. That when, when he accomplishes what he wants to do in their life, they simply say, I don't know. I think God did that. So we're going to look at that today as we look um, at the life of Saul and at his conversion. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to do quite a bit of reading today. Okay, so you guys are going to have to hang with me. Acts chapter 9 begins with two words. It begins with, but Saul. If you turn back to chapter 8, it says, and Saul. And then if you scoot back from chapter 8, verse 1, just a few verses there in chapter 7, this is a, a story that we looked at uh, in, a, in a specific circumstance, a very heavy circumstance that we looked at two weeks ago. Saul was present when Stephen, a follower of Jesus, was killed. And Saul not only was present, but he looked on um, with, uh, he, he said, this is a good thing. Saul, uh, as we pick this up in, in chapter 9, we're going to see Saul was a, a very angry man. He was a man of conviction. And he was kind of at the tip of the spear to extinguish an entire group of people. Now, when you think about that, you think about extinguishing an entire group of people, who comes to mind? Who? Hitler? Yep. I mean, that's who comes to mind for me. Who else? You guys are a horrible at history. Go ahead, Cameron. I have a feeling this is going to be a good one. The United States? I, I thought. I thought something like that was coming. There's times, for sure, where the, where the intention was set out by whoever it was. To rid the earth of a specific group of people. That's what Paul was doing. Paul had set out to rid the earth of these people. These followers of Jesus. We'll see the, the people that are called the way. So let's look. Um, and let me read just a few verses here. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Saul's rage is immense at these people that are called the way. You look at that, that's capital. It seems to be how the early church referred to themselves at this particular time. They don't really have a name yet. They don't know what they are. They don't know um, anything about kind of this collection of people other than that they follow Jesus. Now, the clearest reference, the word way is used a lot in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used in a very simple manner. We're going to go that way. Other times it's used to think about a way of life. Here it's very much that way. And it's likely a reference to what Jesus said about himself in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so this seems to be language that the early church adopted to kind of identify who they were. Uh, they're Jesus-following Jews who believe that they have the true way. And this uh, incites deep anger and conviction with Saul and with other Jews. They've been identified as the people of God, but now these other people are saying, oh, that's not quite right, it's Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. But because of that, they're... Saul, in particular, is losing his mind. He wants to travel to Damascus. It's about a six-day's journey. Uh, he's, he's asked for permission. Um, the high priest has granted that. It seems to be that there's authority within the government even... Uh, that, yes, you can go, you can go to this nearby, somewhat nearby town, six days' journey away, and you can go in and out, and you can look for people who are professing Jesus. And if you find them, it's perfectly okay. In fact, we're, we're glad that you're doing this. But since you're doing this, we don't have to, and we can kind of, probably even kind of leave that on him. He's, he is the tip of the spear on this. He's driving this. He's the one that is making this happen. He's... Uh, an intelligent man, well-trained, he's educated, he speaks well, uh, and he has deep convictions about what this is. So they're like, yeah, go ahead. You go to Damascus, you find any of them, you bring them back here. Bind them and bring them back here. And this was Saul's intention. This is what he's going to do. Verse 3 says, now as he went on his way, not capitalized, he's just going on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So after receiving permission, Saul was on his way. He's traveling to Damascus as he's nearing uh, the city. He has this encounter with Jesus, uh, a blinding light. This morning, uh, I was sitting out back in the shade, uh, spending just a few moments with the Lord before we came to church. Uh, and I was sitting in the shade. The sun was to my back, um, and the moon was still very clear. You could see the moon very well. And there's not a cloud in the sky. We've had a lot of clouds lately. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, and I was just looking into the sky. No apparent reason. Nothing spiritual. I'm just looking, right? And as I'm looking, I feel like I'm trying to look when the sky is completely clear. I don't know. Probably nobody else does this. But I, it's like I try to look and see how far into the sky I can see. It's a weird thing. I've never got very far. Just the blue, right? But to the point to where my eyes are starting to hurt just a little bit. It's so clear. It's so bright that I'm, I'm squinting and I'm having a hard time keeping my eyes open. 
Paul is walking down the road and he encounters this blinding light. The radiance, the glory of Christ, the risen Jesus. And it literally blinds his eyes and it brings him to his knees. A a response that's common by people in the Old Testament in particular when they encounter Jesus. When they encounter Yahweh. Is that it brings them to their knees. So it's a very powerful moment. And there's others that are with him. And Paul doesn't know exactly who it is. Clearly, this seems to be God. Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. Can you, can you imagine what's going through Paul's mind in that very moment? He's traveling to Damascus to bind and ultimately to rid the earth of people who follow Jesus. And he encounters God. And he says, who are you? I'm Jesus. The, the emotions, the confusion, the just the... It's hard to put into words what he would have experienced in that very moment. But there's other people that are there with him. And they experience an event. Here it says, um, they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Paul's conversion, I called him Paul. Right now, all through Acts 9, he's called Saul. In chapter 13, you'll see he goes by Paul from there on. Paul is just the, the Greek name of the Hebrew Saul. Uh, so I may go back and forth. I'm talking about the same guy. Um, three times throughout the book of Acts, we have uh, a record of Paul's conversion. Here it says that they heard uh, a voice, but they didn't see anybody. In Acts uh, 22, it says that they saw the light, but they not, did not hear the voice. So which one is right? Well, they both are. Uh, they're kind of different accounts. It kind of puts the full thing together for us. What seems to be clear as you look at these different accounts is that Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus. Other people were there and they witnessed it, but they did not hear the Lord specifically and they did not see the Lord specifically. They saw Paul's reaction to his encounter with the Lord. But this was very clearly Paul's moment with Jesus. He'd been trying to kill people who followed Jesus. He endorsed the murder of Stephen who followed Jesus, who proclaimed Jesus. And now this is Paul's experience, his encounter with the risen Savior. Nobody else's. This becomes a little bit, well, not a little bit. This becomes very significant when you begin to look at some of the other letters and some of the other things that are said about Paul. Because before Jesus' death, how many disciples do we have? Twelve. Minus one. Judas. But then we fill that one in, right? Who was it? Who was the, the disciple that was added? Anybody know? It's in here. Y'all can go look later. No. Who? No. But the point is, is he's only mentioned one time. This 12th disciple is only mentioned one time. So when you think about the 12 apostles, we don't ever consider this other member who's kind of like voted in. Uh, they cast lots for. Did you look it up? Who is it? Yeah. Matthias? I don't say that right. Not Matthias. Not Matthias, son. Okay? But he's never in the picture any longer after that. So who really becomes that 12th apostle? Paul. And because he has his very own personal, unique encounter with Jesus. No one else. Let's continue. Verse 8. Saul 
rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. There's all kinds of these little details throughout this story in particular that kind of bring your mind back to other things. When I read this, I think three days and three nights, or when I think of dead for three days, I think of Jesus in the tomb. He can't see. Jesus specifically healed people that were blind, but he also didn't eat anything. So it's almost as if he was dead. He wasn't, but it's like that. And so there's all kinds of these these little nuances that you find throughout this text. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision. This is kind of the second vision, not a vision like a a dream, but a a very real interaction with the Lord. The Lord said, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. Now, even this is kind of reminiscent of responses that we find in the Old Testament. We see Abraham responds in a similar way. Here I am, Lord. Samuel, when he was just a boy, here I am, Lord. Isaiah, his vision With God in the temple. Here I am Lord. Send me. Ananias responds in the same way. And the Lord said to him. Rise and go to the street called Straight. This is a real street. Still in Damascus today. And it's almost another play on words. There's not a lot given to it. But there's all these little things. Saul's persecuting the people of the way. And here he finds himself taking refuge in the physical location of the street called straight or the same kind of idea as the way which way do you want to go you want to go on the straight way you don't want to go this way it brings to mind matthew 7 uh, 13 and 14 Uh, depending on your translation it may or may not use the word straight a matter of fact i think king james may be the only one uh, that uses the word straight but it says enter in at the straight gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many are there who go in But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few will find it. So he says, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. So this is kind of the the third time we see this. He's talking about the vision previously, um, or this other experience. He's seen in a vision that a man named Ananias will come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is hesitant to say the least. Paul or Saul has a reputation. People know who he is. It's known that he endorsed the the murder of Stephen. In fact, it's known that he's traveled to Damascus for the very purpose of binding and returning these people of the way back to Jerusalem. Like, he set out, he got permission, and then he took off. And the news traveled faster than he did. Because people in Damascus know that, hey, Saul's coming. Like, he's coming. If he finds you, it's not going to be good. 
So Ananias, he don't really want to go. He's like, look, Lord, I'm not sure if you know who this guy is or not, which is kind of a funny statement, right? Like, hey, God, I hear what you're saying, but, like, Saul's that dude that's been killing folks. Like, he doesn't want anything good to happen. But he goes anyway. And I, I think this next verse, verse 15, is kind of why. But the Lord said to him, Go. And give me an option. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, I don't know if, if this brought some kind of solace to Ananias or not. Uh, in my own twisted mind, I feel like hearing that, Ananias would be like, okay, I like that sounds, that sounds not great. It's at least not going to be all sunshine and rainbows for Saul moving forward. There's a lot of clearly suffering that's going to impact his life. Okay, I got you. All right, Lord, I'll go. And so he does. Now, people often speak uh, about the excitement of a Saul-like conversion, a Paul-like conversion, uh, a Damascus Road conversion. It's a, often presented as a very glamorous testimony. But they leave out this verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul is God's chosen instrument. And in this case, what comes with that is not parades, power, it's not position, it's not accolades, it's not success. What is attached is a a hefty amount of suffering and affliction. We know from these other letters that, that Paul was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, lost at sea. All of these things multiple times for the most part. Uh, His life was not easy from this point moving forward. There was a lot of hardship that he faced. A lot of challenges, physical, emotional, and everything in between that he endured. And this is part of Saul's calling to follow the Lord. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose, and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he went with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And Ananias is obedient. Now there's some other themes that we see uh, in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament and especially here in Acts. Saul's healed immediately. He regains his sight. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's restored. He's baptized. Immediately he's baptized before he eats. He hasn't eaten in, in three days. Ananias comes. Prays for him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's got to be hungry. But the first thing he does is he's baptized. He eats and he begins to regain his strength. 
And then immediately, once again, this word immediately, this sense of urgency that these things have to happen and they have to happen now. I've got to be baptized. I just encountered Jesus on the road here. I was coming for the purpose to destroy, to kill, to remove these people from the planet. But now I am his. I am only his. We sang the song, my hope is only found in Jesus. There's nothing else that I can do. Everything about the way that I was traveling is wrong. And everything about the way that I'm going now has to be Jesus. There's no other option. My sight's been restored. I've, I've seen and I've heard from Jesus. He, he has a specific purpose for my life. I have to be baptized. Please let me go where the other disciples are at. Where are they at? I, I've got to be with them. I need to, to preach his name, that Jesus is the Son of God. There's, there's nothing else that I can do. And we see in this moment this immediate shift in what we'll see in a, in a couple of chapters later as you work your way through this book from this man of Saul to this man of Paul. Verse 24 says, But their plot became... Oh, excuse me. Verse. I've went too far. I'm sorry. Verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. This is a big theme in this particular section. For Paul, or for Saul, that the persecutor becomes the persecuted. That the one who is sent to destroy is now the one who, who is sent to bring the good news to the Gentiles. To the kings and before the people of Israel. Verse 24 says, But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates, they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples, that's interesting, his disciples, he already has disciples at this point, people that he's apparently teaching, took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now this was a significant moment in in Paul's life, he recounts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're not going to read that, but you can go and look that up. Verse 26, and it says, And when he come to Jerusalem, let me pause there, another interesting thing. In Galatians 1, you see that when he comes to Jerusalem, verse 18, you'll see that it took about three years, according to Paul. We're kind of reading through this as if everything's happening right now, but, but he has this experience, this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. We have... Three days where he's blind without sight uh, in someone's house. Ananias comes, lays his hands on him. His sight is restored. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately he begins, he's baptized and he begins to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. And then there seems to be this time, this period of time where he's teaching then in the synagogues. He's in Damascus. This man who was known for murder uh, and for the purpose of extinguishing the people of the way has now become the, the most ardent convert. He was the tip of the spear to destroy. He's now the tip of the spear to lead and to bring life and redemption through Jesus Christ. 
And so it seems to be a period of time. And in Galatians 1.18, it says when uh, it talks about Paul first going to Jerusalem, that it was about three years after this experience. Paul uses this time frame to highlight the fact that um, he wasn't an apostle because of the other apostles, because of the time that he spent with the apostles, that they didn't bring him in. He, he argues this in different places that, that he was a, an apostle because of his experience with Jesus, his encounter with the risen Savior. Luke highlights this also, and Luke is the author of, of the book of Acts. Luke highlights this to point out that even the apostles, they're cautious, but even the apostles accept Saul, accept Paul as an apostle. There's no argument about it. Everybody seems to be in agreement for the most part. So verse 26 continues that he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Can you imagine that? Deidre pointed this out last night. We were talking about this text and uh, how often we might pray for somebody, uh, particularly that's living a life uh, very inconsistent with the word of God. We pray for somebody's salvation. We pray for their their. Uh, recovery from addiction we pray for them to have a, a difference a turn in their lifestyle and then god answers that prayer and we see this miraculous change but what do we do i don't know if i believe him. i don't know we don't really want him doing too much here right now because we don't know if it's real the disciples felt this way they're like man this guy was killing people and all of a sudden three years have passed surely they've heard about what's going on in damascus but now he comes down and he wants to really be in with us. So they're cautious. It says, verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Those are just the Greek-speaking Jews. But they also were seeking to kill him. Again, his life is in jeopardy now for proclaiming the name of Jesus as Lord. The man who once stood and endorsed the stoning of Stephen, they looked and they, they saw that Saul was in favor of this. He encouraged this. He was okay with this. His very life is now threatened because he's preaching the same message as Stephen. The persecutor has become the persecuted. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down, verse 30. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. We know that he was there for quite some time. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. We see that the early church uh, has experienced some pretty significant persecution. And that climaxes with the person of Saul. But Saul is God's chosen instrument. No one else's. No one else looked and said, you know what? You know who would really be perfect to, to lead this charge to make the gospel known to the Gentiles? You know who we really need? We need Saul. Like, it's a no-brainer. Let's get Saul over here. If we could just kind of get him on our team, like, we'll be good. Nobody thought that. Like, that's as absurd as it could possibly be. But God said, he's my chosen instrument. I am setting him apart for this task, for this purpose, for this mission. 
And so the climax of persecution at this period of time in the church is reached with Saul as the one who's persecuting the church. But then that transition is Paul is one who's also being persecuted. As he has no other hope in life except Jesus. And it says that the church had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Scripture is full of paradoxes. This man Saul was determined he was, he was capable. He had the full support and backing of the chief priests, the Jews, uh, likely the government. He had the ability. He was, he was driven by conviction. It wasn't just a whim. Hey, let's go do this. It wasn't just simply to, to be a, uh, a hateful person. It wasn't simply just because he, he was bloodthirsty. It wasn't just something that he decided to do on a whim. He was convicted that these people need to go. He was bent on snuffing out the way. He was feared by the disciples. He acted with precision, with violence. And if you're reading the story for the first time, or even imagine if you're living the story, you would have to be tempted to think, this might be where it ends. Like, those Christians, those, those Jews that follow Jesus, they had a good run. But time's running out. But God, but God intervenes. He intervenes and he turns this murderous, wicked Saul into the most ardent convert one could imagine. At the tip of the spear to extinguish a people, he becomes the tip of the spear to bring redemption to all people through the person of Jesus Christ, whom he once hated. No one else could write this story. No one else could... Make it happen. Not only were Saul's plans thwarted, but Saul was indeed God's chosen instrument to accomplish this. And moving forward in the story, as we continue to move forward, we'll look next week at Peter. We're going to see this is kind of a transition point in the book of Acts and in the the history of the church, the early church. But we'll see how even you and I are recipients of God's grace through Paul. 2,000 years later, that you and I, we sit here, we gather, we sang this morning, we clapped, the, the children participated in worship because of this choice, God's choice to choose this man to bring this gospel to the world. So what about you and me? There was another phrase that we see often in this text, and I, I didn't really spend any time on it. But you see a refrain, something like this, his name, or uh, the name of the Lord, or for the sake of his name, or for the name of Jesus, or according to his name. Phrases like that that are consistent in this, this passage. Paul was God's chosen instrument for a specific plan and a specific purpose at a very specific point in time. But that doesn't mean the rest of us are just spectators. We're not just watching and reading and reflecting on God had a chosen instrument. And now now it's done. Now there's a lot to be done. 
So for what purpose is God employing you and me as instruments? Instruments to make his name known. What specific purpose? Just like all of these things have a specific purpose. God has designed you. He's created you. You've lived through certain experiences in life that God intends to use to impact the people around you for the purpose of making his name known. What is he doing? What is he asking you to do? Do you know? Maybe you're living it out exactly what he's, he's called you to do, and that's fantastic, and we, we celebrate those things. But, but we also know that there's times when, when God makes changes, when he shifts what we're doing or where we're doing it or who we're doing it around. We see as, as we look through Paul's life, the many times that, that he changed locations, that he changed people, the purpose never changed. But all of those things were unique through Paul. And so what does that look like for you? What does that look like in your life? Paul's not the measuring stick. There was one Paul. None of us are going to be Paul or be like Paul. We're all different. We all have specific things that make us unique. The measuring stick, I think, for us, though, is the immediacy with which Paul was obedient. Can you respond in the same manner as Paul did? The scope of the task, the scope of the purpose is irrelevant. It's the obedience that God is looking for. People were cautious. They were fearful of, of, of who Saul was because of what he had done. But, but when they spent any time with them, when they interacted with him, Barnabas responds about this, that, that they can see the risen Savior Living in him. He has no other hope. No other desire. Christ is at the center of his life. So then that can be the measuring stick. Is that, is that how people respond to you? <laughs> Maybe one day. Do people look at you and, and see that Jesus is at the center of all that you do? It looks different. The relationships are different. The time and place is different. But the person of Jesus is no different. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So go ahead and let's stand. We're going to sing, we're going to sing one last song. In all of this, this series, the, the emphasis, when we come to the text every week, the emphasis is the story of God and, and how God was working in people at different points in time. And so, so even as we consider our own lives, the, the, the focus, the central point is not on me, Lord. The focus is, is on God. What is, what is your story? And what role do I play in that? How do I be obedient to that thing, to that little slice of your story in, in Tempe, Chandler, Phoenix, or Mesa? What is, what is my little piece of that, God, in, in where I work or where I go to school? How do I put your story on display?
So we're going to pray. If you bow your head and close your eyes, I want you to consider those things. What does it look like for you to, to make God's story known in your life where you're at now? Father, we, we love you. And we love your word. And we're thankful that you've chosen to record it. God, we thank you for the life of Paul. For Ananias. For Barnabas. For the disciples. For the apostles. Lord, we ask that you would use us. Lord, we long to be an instrument in your hands. For your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.